Am I on, Colin? Yep. Okay, thank you. I'm very grateful to be uh, given the opportunity to uh, come and continue this morning on a series we're kind of part way through on the covenant of grace. Let's bow our heads another word of prayer, if you don't mind. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your Son, Jesus, who is for us the fountain, the source of all grace. We thank you, Holy Spirit, that you're here with us now. We pray for your empowering, inspiring presence to catch not only me up in words, but every one of us into the truth, that we'll see it, we'll embrace it, we'll be encouraged by it. In Jesus' name, amen. Today we're going to look at the Mosaic Covenant, which sounds like putting down tiles on the floor, but never mind. It actually means the covenant that God made through Moses with Israel. So it's the covenant of Moses or Israel. And we're covering Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, but not all of them altogether. Okay. Um, two verses for you to begin with. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. John 1. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Is that better? Yeah. Is that good news? Yeah. We, don't just live, we don't live under the law anymore. We're not living under our old covenant, excuse me. But we are living under the grace and truth that have come to us through Jesus Christ. And then one from Romans 6. We'll come to this three times in this this morning. For sin shall not be your master, because you are not under law, but under grace. Perhaps I should begin with a quick review of the three-part sermons and this covenant of graces and how we'll get in the end, somewhere in 2023 to the end of this. There are a thread of scriptures which tell us that there are some things God did before he made anything. He chose a people for himself, his children. He appointed God the Son to be their saviour and king and to be the lamb who would die in their place for their sin. He planned the whole ages-long process of bringing a people home to himself, to be his with him forever. It was all established in God before he made anything. That is his eternal covenant of grace. And that is what he unfolds through Adam and Noah and Abraham and Moses with Israel, and then David, and then finally the culmination of it all, our Lord Jesus. When he made man, Adam and Eve, he placed them in a garden temple or sanctuary, which was in Eden, in the east of Eden. And they knew him and lived with him there. But they rebelled against the Lord, sinned, and they and the world came under God's curse. They would no longer just eat from what was freely growing in nature, this tree, that tree. They would have to work, to toil. God even spoke about the sweat of their brow, to gain produce from the earth produce crops. Yet he promised that one born of woman would defeat Satan, the deceiver, undo the fall and the curse, and bring salvation to all the children of God. By the way, there's a few copies of notes there afterwards because I'm not giving you every scripture. We'll be here till five o'clock if we do. When mankind then increased on the earth, so did their wickedness. The Lord wiped almost all of them away by a worldwide flood, saving only Noah and his family as a remnant, a new receding of humanity. God renewed his covenant of grace with Noah. Though the curse continues, he, he will maintain, he says, he promises the seasons, so that crops may be planted and gathered year after year after year. And the sign of God's covenant with Noah was, of course, the... Thank you. Some of you remember. Good. In the world to come, 
when Jesus returns. There is no more curse. Look it up in Revelation. And in a renewed earth, one whole global Eden, God will dwell with his children. and They will see his face. God made a covenant with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, his descendants. It was a further unfolding of his covenant of grace, which is completed in his son Jesus. The sign of God's covenant with Abraham was male circumcision. But God's eternal covenant of grace wasn't yet finished. It was continuing to be unfolded. Now the family of 70, Jacob's, Jacob, Israel's children, which entered Egypt, has over 400 years period become a nation of many thousands of people. I mean to say here, Adam was a son of God. Not in the sense that Jesus is the son of God. God, the son, is eternal. Jesus is eternally the son of God. But Adam was the created son, a creaturely son of God, who, with whom God had relationship and partnership. He was a covenant partner of God. So, no Abraham too, is, we, we think of him as a son of God, and Noah as a son of God. God chose them. In Adam's case, he created him from dust and fathered those men. They were his covenant partners. But Jesus is our covenant partner, and in him we become covenant partners with God. As we look at Israel and Moses and Exodus and the law, Israel is a corporate son of God, but they become slaves of Egypt. Listen to God's message to be delivered to Pharaoh by Moses. Tell Pharaoh this is what the Lord Yahweh says. Israel is my firstborn son, and I told you to let my son go so that he may worship me. You know, all of Israel, the whole community, God calls this his son, his partner. But since you've refused to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. It was because of God's covenant with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob that Israel were given Moses to lead them, miraculously liberated from slavery in Egypt, and they passed through the Red Sea. And the Lord leads them to Sinai, to a place where he revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush, perhaps not many months previously. And at Sinai, God delivered his law to Israel. And specifically, he delivered the book of the covenant. That's what we call Exodus 20 to 23. In fact, it's what Moses calls that section in Exodus 24 verse 7. He calls it the book of the covenant. The book has two sections. The ten words, which we think of as the Ten Commandments, and then the ordinances or judgments, the, the following chapters. They're case laws demonstrating principles of what is right and wrong by examples, including fines and punishments for wrongdoing. What we call the Ten Commandments are split in this way. The first four words are how we relate to God. The six further words are how we relate to one another. And here they are. Four words. No other gods before me. No images or idols. Do not bear the name of the Lord falsely. Keep the Lord's Sabbath. Then the the words that relate to one another. Honour your father and mother. Do not kill. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not lie. Do not covet. You notice that most of those are negative? Bear that in mind. It's worth remembering the ten words were given to Moses on two tablets of stone up on Mount Sinai. They were inscribed by the finger of God, it says. Whilst Moses was there with the Lord, the people of Israel down below in the valley were already breaking just about all of those covenant rules. So when Moses came down, he saw them and he threw the tablets down and they broke. So when he sorted out the people and 
He had to go up on the mountain and get a new set given to him by God. That second set was then copied, and a copy of those two tablets was put on display in the camp of Israel. But those two sets, the broken set and the whole set, inscribed by the finger of God, were put into the Ark of the Covenant, which also in time contained a container of manna and air and stuff, staff that blossomed. So the Ark of the Covenant, this gold lid on it, pictured God, the cherubim, a symbol of the presence of God, looking down upon his broken law within the box. By the way, I didn't make this up. This is rabbinical teaching. That's what the rabbis say happened. Once a year, on the Day of Atonement, the blood of an animal was sprinkled on the lid of the Ark. Just once a year. That was the Day of Atonement. The broken law was covered not by a gold lid, but by sacrificial blood. The sins of the people were atoned for, paid for, by the offered blood. Of course, this picture is only a picture. It's fulfilled in Christ Jesus, who shed his blood at the cross to make atonement for us. Our sins, our transgressions, our covenant breaking is remitted and cancelled from our account by the blood shed by Jesus. Then in Exodus 24, it tells us how this covenant was ratified, how the people entered into this covenant with God. It's not the same as when Yahweh cut his covenant with, with, with Abraham. Remember, they, they made a field of blood, carcass, animals were slaughtered, there was a field of blood, carcasses either side. And the tradition in this covenant making was two men would walk between the animals and greet each other and make covenant and agree, may I be like these animals here if I do not keep my word to you. But when God met with Abraham, God walked all the way through the animals to Abraham on the other side. It was an unconditional covenant. God did not part her 50-50. But here, this is different. Let me read it to you. Exodus 24. Verse 4, Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord and early the next morning he got up and built an altar at the base of the mountain and also 12 pillars for the 12 tribes of Israel. He sent out some young men of Israel and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as peace offerings to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood of those creatures and put it in bowls and the other half he sprinkled on the altar. There's no Ark of the Covenant. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people, the chapters I've just mentioned. And who replied? This is their response. All the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. So Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people. Bit of a gory idea, this. And says, this is the blood of the covenant. Notice those words. This is the blood of the covenant the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So by this process, half of the blood of the sacrificed animals was laid upon Yahweh, pictured by the altar, and half upon the people. They were partners in covenant together. That phrase, the blood of the covenant, we just read it. Listen to what Jesus says in the Passover meal. Taking the cup of wine, the last cup, the cup of blessing, the last cup of the meal. You say a blessing to God for the... He didn't say a blessing to God for the wine. This is what he said over the wine. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Again, the same in Mark, slightly different in Luke. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. It's not more blood shed for the old one. It's the blood that seals the new one, which is poured out for you. Listen also now to these words of Peter. 
This is how Peter's first epistle starts. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the elect and chosen, who are exiles of the dispersion through Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and sanctified by the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood. Did you ever notice that, sprinkling by his blood? Grace and peace be yours in abundance. What is Peter referring to here? He's thinking back to that making of the old covenant, ratified in Exodus 24, people sprinkled by the old covenant blood. We are bound to Jesus by having been sprinkled by his blood, just as Israel were bound to obedience to Yahweh by the blood of the covenant. Now, for them, that was an event. We, were, we are sprinkled not by something that happens when I become a Christian or in this, this time and place now. It happened at the cross. It's the finished work of what Jesus did at the cross which is applied to us so that we are sealed to him. Sealed to obedience to him by the blood of the covenant. We really should not think of the blood of Jesus as still flowing or he's still bleeding for us. That's a false image which settled into our thinking from the unbiblical fancies of Catholicism and mysticism and also, sadly, some old hymns and choruses too that I grew up singing. We are sprinkled by the blood shed at Golgotha, not by something that's currently happening in the heavens. Skip over. Rest of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, all right? I haven't got time to talk about any of those. To Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy... Literally, this is a Greek word, Deuteronomy, it's almost a Greek word. It says, it literally means the, the, the second law. It's not another law, it's the law being repeated, it's the covenant being renewed. Forty years in the wilderness, the Egypt generation, those who were over 20 when the law was given, are all dead, apart from two, Joshua and Caleb, God's favoured them. The older generation had repeatedly repelled against Yahweh in the wilderness and he vowed they would never enter the promised land but they would all die there. So now with a new adult generation who have not been raised in Egyptian slavery, the Lord renews but also adds to his covenant words. What happens here at the border of Moab is the people are making a covenant to keep the covenant made 40 years before. But this covenant adds some words which we call the curse of the law. If I get that? Yes. The book of the covenant is read to them again and further words from the Lord are added and written down. Included in those further words, words are recitals of blessings and cursings for those who keep or break the covenant of the Lord. The people were placed on two hills facing one another across the valley. The blessings of keeping God's covenant were declared to those on the one hill. The, the, the terrible, dire consequences of breaking God's covenant were the curse was pronounced upon the people on the other side. At the close of those declarations, Moses makes his conclusion. A couple of places from Deuteronomy here. See, today I'm setting before you a blessing and a curse. A blessing if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I'm giving today. A curse if you disobey the commandments of the Lord your God. He calls heaven and earth to witness that he's given them a choice between life and death, blessing and curse. And he urges them, choose life. Obey the law. When in his letters Paul refers to the curse of the law, those are the passages that he's looking back to. The solemnly declared curses of the law. You see, 
The people of Israel were, did, were not in an unconditional covenant. There were conditions to their enjoyment of God's presence with them and so on. The continuance of any individual within a community or even in some cases remaining alive was keeping God's covenant. The possession of the promised land was conditional upon the community of Israel keeping God's covenant. When you betray me, when you rebel against me, I'll throw you out. And he did. Twice. When the nation was split into two kingdoms after Solomon, Israel in the north lasted around 200 years before being exiled from that land in 722 BC. Judah in the south lasted another 136 years until they too were exiled from the land in 586 BC. In both cases, the siege of Samaria, the northern city, the siege of Jerusalem in the south, in those two sieges, 136 years apart, they completely fulfilled to the letter the dreadful prophecies given through Moses of what would come upon a people who rejected the word of the Lord. We are not under the curse of the law. God just didn't cross it out. Let me read you from Galatians 3, 10. I'm going to read from a bit before what I've put up there. All who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. You see, if you break one commandment, you're dead. If you break all of them, you're dead. It's the, 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 the punishment is dead, right? Even for one. So curse is anyone who does not continue to do everything written. Now it's clear that no one is justified before God by the law because the, righteousness will, the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, the man who does these things will live by them. Listen to this. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. He redeemed us. There's another saving word there as well as atonement. He redeemed us in order that the blessing promised to Abraham would come to the Gentiles in Christ Jesus so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. The judgment and punishment of our sin and the curse of our covenant breaking fell upon Jesus, our Lord. He's taken away both the condemnation and the curse from us lawbreakers. Paul even imagines the law and its curses being left nailed to the cross of Jesus. It's one of my favorite verses. Colossians 2. When you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your sinful nature... God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our trespasses, having cancelled the debt ascribed to us in the decrees that stood against us. That's a way of speaking about God's law of condemn, which condemned us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. Paul imagines that the law and the curse of the law is left nailed to the cross. When Jesus is taken down and it's all done, it's left there. Marked, paid, finished. But the other thing that Deuteronomy takes us to is what, what we call the core of the law. In this second reading of the law to the tribes of Israel before they get ready to enter the promised land, God adds statements which go to the very core or heart of his law. The first is this, Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love. Get the word? Love. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And then also this from Leviticus 19. And you will love your neighbor as yourself. So what we had as ten words 
becomes two. All of how we relate to God can be summed up in love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind or strength. And all the negatives, you shall not, you shall not, of how we relate to one another is summed up in a positive statement, love your neighbor as yourself. Now the rabbis in the time of Jesus understood that that was the core of the law. Jesus has some interesting conversations with people where he quotes these things and someone even quotes them to him because they've got it. They know that's true. But then Jesus added, sorry, then Jesus added a new commandment, a third law of love. And he mentions it three times, John 13, John 15 first, John 15 again. A new commandment I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, you must also love one another. By this everyone will know you're my disciples if you love one another. This third law of love, and I believe, what notice the words, a new commandment, he's adding to the, for the first two. But it applies only to us Christians. Because it's not just loving someone as you love yourself, so you don't do to them what you wouldn't do to you. Or, you know, do as you would be done by, as it, some people put it. This goes way beyond that. I am required by the Lord Jesus to love you as he loves me. Whole different ballgame. Christians are not under the old covenant, Moses and Israel. When I was a young man, many churches were legalistic. They had their own don't lists which, to add to the Ten Commandments too. You know, don't go to the movies, don't do, you know, all sorts of stuff. But then in the charismatic renewal in the 70s and through to into the 80s, that swung against that legalism, which was good, because legalism is poison. Regulations pull, batters it down to the ground, hammers it into the soil, this whole attitude of legalism. And in those times, that verse, Romans 6.14, you're not under law but under grace, was quoted all over the place. People were preaching sermons on it. I even read a few books on that verse. It was good to lose legalism, but the problem is every swing of a pendulum tends to swing too far and the, the, the balance is somewhere in the middle. Over here was legalism, but the alternative is antinomianism, which means against law. That you say foolish things about the law, you dismiss it. You try and rub it out. I used to hear people hearing, saying some silly, irresponsible, even heretical things about God's law. There was an attitude towards God's law expressed sometimes that reminds me of what I learned in my German lessons when I was at school. The words of a boy called Casper who would not eat his soup. Oh, take the nasty soup away. I won't have any soup today. The, the story ends with Casper dead, of course. So some preachers, teachers and writers have treated the law as something nasty that shouldn't be received or regarded at all. Don't pay any attention to it. That's the opposite of legalism, but that's not the answer. That's being against the law. Rejecting all the moral instructions and values of God's law. You see, come back to it later, but never mind. Trash human traditions if they're unhelpful, outdated, irrelevant. But the law is God's word. He meant what he said. And I do not believe that God has changed his mind about gender, sexuality, sexual behavior, killing, lying, cheating, coveting. 
Paul, who wrote, you're not under law but under grace, states in the same letter to the Romans that the law is holy. The commandment is holy, righteous and good. He values what the law is saying. It is the embodiment of knowledge and truth, he says. It is spiritual. The anonymous writer of Psalm 119 loved God's law, meditated upon it and found treasure in it. Here's the three things, folks. The problem with God's law is us, not his law. It measures his righteousness and measures our sin and we say, well, I can't do that. I can't do it. Which is true. But we'll come to that. Why did God give the law? It says in Galatians again, by the way, if you get a few minutes later on today, sit down and read through Galatians in one go and get hammered (laughs) by Paul as he blasts away at legalism and about going back to the old covenant rule. Before this faith came, we were held in custody under the law. And notice in custody, you know, you know what custody is? I'm taking you into arrest, sir, you know. They were held, arrested, by, under the law. Locked up until faith should be revealed. So the law became our guardian or tutor to lead us to Christ, to Messiah, that we may be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we're no longer the guardian. The law was not a route to righteousness. Eight times in Galatians and Romans, Paul states, it's not possible to be justified before God by keeping his law. You can't do it. It was given to bring order to the lives of the people of Israel, to keep them from harm and from harming others. It established civil and criminal laws to to govern them. The law was a tutor to teach and train and restrain them until Messiah came. In the same way that God gave a law to Adam, don't eat of that tree because when you do, you'll die. It wasn't restrictive, it was a severe, it was a clear warning, gracious warning. Don't do that. It's not going to do you any good. It reveals the righteousness of God. It therefore measures our sin. And it teach, the law teaches the need for God's craving grace and help. At the core of all of the Old Covenant teaching, all of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, and all of the teaching that's in there is a core of it, which we call God's moral law. How we relate to him and how we relate to one another. And you can put away all of the example stuff, the ordinances and the rules and regulations, and come back to those two laws of love, which say this is the right way to relate to God. This is the right way to relate to one another. I've got three things to say about Jesus and the Lord. Jesus did not come to abolish God's moral law. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. What's to fulfill? To top them up, to overflow them, to supersede them. Not cast them away, but to step from them further, to go beyond. Jesus then took the law deeper. He took the law back to the core. He was often quoting it, you know, to great commandments. But also the human heart. Listen to him. Listen to him now talking about adultery. I mean, this is audacious stuff. He says, you've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, Whoa, 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 whoa. Moses, God said that through Moses. Jesus says, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman to lust after her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. He takes the law and puts it in there. It's not a tick list, oh, I didn't commit adultery. Ding! He says, what went on in your heart? What were you doing in your imagination? He takes it deeper to that inward being. 
Then he teaches us to aim higher than the Lord. The ten words are mostly negative, remember? Don't do this, don't do that. But what Jesus teaches us is a way of life where we do positively good things rather than trying to just avoid doing evil things. We overcome right we overcome evil with good. We love, not just in words, but in actions. So we overcome selfishness. We overcome deception. We overcome covetousness by practicing the life that Jesus gives us. That pattern is continued in Testament where we're told to put off the old immoral, I mean immoral, not just sexual, but in every term, way of life and put on positive moral attitudes and actions. We overcome evil with good. But the New Testament clearly teaches, I want to spell these out for you, that we're not under the Abrahamic covenant of circumcision. No winces there. The food laws of the old covenant, and I've given you the scriptures. Listen, it's a sign of false teachers that they require abstinence from certain foods. If you want to practice your own discipline, you don't want to eat pork, fine. But if you teach other people that, you're a false teacher. Don't put it on other people. You're entitled to embrace whatever discipline of food and diet you wish to do. All right? You're entitled to do that. No one's going to criticize you for it. But the minute you start to pressure other people, and especially if you put Christ- kind of spiritual labels on it, stop it. That's a sign of false teaching. The laws of the sacrifices and offerings of the Old Covenant are all fulfilled in Jesus. We don't need an altar. There's no sacrifices. It's all fulfilled in Jesus. Just read Hebrews, I said. You know, the whole thing. Neither the festivals of Israel nor the Sabbath of Israel govern Christians. We're not under the festivals, nor are we under the Sabbath. That's why we're meeting on a Sunday. We're meeting on the Lord's Day, not the Sabbath day. The principle of Sabbath for us as Christians is we should not be working every day of the week. We should be taking one day off for rest and recreation, being with our family, being in our home, being out and about, and, rest and recuperating and resting. It, the Lord, when they, God gave the Sabbath, he didn't say go to synagogue on Sabbath. He said you stay with your family and talk to them. You go for walks together. You teach your children. That's, it was a family time, a household time. All the commandments, sorry, I didn't finish that, nor the civil laws of Israel. There are people in America who want to create what they call theonomy. They want to make, create America living under the Ten Commandments and the law of Israel. I think, what a mess that would be. And by the way, my Seventh-day Adventist friends are sadly mistaken on a number of those issues. But there you, go. you see, God's moral law, morality, sexual morality, killing, lying, and all these things, you don't find them repealed in the investment. You find, in fact, there's a table in those notes there, there's some copies here, where I show you Paul and other New Testament actually repeat them. They repeat them. They're renewed. Oh, oh no, that's all gone. No, it hasn't. They're saying it again. Not because we're under a law that governs us in those ways, but because those are the right principles. The law of God on matters concerning killing, sexuality, theft, fraud, are all repeated in New Testament scriptures. There are also positive Old Testament laws which are also repeated in the New Testament scriptures. Helping the poor, widows, foreigners, <laughs> paying workers their just wages, the forgiving of debtors. They're all repeated. All of those commands, though, come back to this. The commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet. Any other commandments are summed up in this one decree, love your neighbor as yourself. 
But we as Christians are called not to be lawbreakers, but law fulfillers. Jesus came to fulfill the law, to overtop it. We're to be those who fulfill the law. So let's go back to Romans 16, Romans 6, sorry, verse 14 again. Now I'm going to read it to you in context. Listen, because I haven't put it all there. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its desires. Just stop obeying it. Do not present the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. Present the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness, to do the right stuff. Sin shall not be your master. That's the context. He's telling him, stop doing that. Begin to do this. Because sin is no longer your master. You're not under law, but under grace. What then? Now this is where Dick Paul deals with that antinomian thing, being against the law. What then? Shall we sin because we're not under law, but under grace? Certainly not. Grace does not give an excuse to go around sinning. Do you not know that when we offer yourselves as obedient slaves, you're slaves to one you obey, whether you're slaves of sin leading to death or to obedience leading to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you once were slaves to sin, you wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you were committed. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves of righteousness. In Romans, Paul goes on to argue that though the Israelites had the law, they couldn't keep it by human effort. The human nature, flesh, was too weak. Another law was at work in them. Sin. Law of sin and death. Remember, we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. It's our nature. Notice that Paul there deals with the argument. We're not under law but under grace, so it doesn't matter if we, if we break God's law. It does matter. Because grace would teach us to fulfill God's law. Those who walk by the Spirit keep or fulfill the law. Those who walk in love, keep or fulfill the law. I just want to mention a couple of things as well. Jesus said this, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And again he said it three times. John 14, 14, and then 15 again. Jesus, when he said that, was recycling the words of Yahweh to Israel. Love the Lord your God and keep his commandments. All of the law was summed up in that. Love the Lord your God and keep his commandments. Jesus says the same to us now. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, what he gave us one. No, the rest come in as well. Come back to three laws of love. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Love for God equals obedience to him equals keeping his commandments. John in his letter goes back over those words of Jesus in John 14 and 15. And four times in two, that is 1 John and 2 John, he goes back to the same subject. And I didn't have time to give you all of those here this morning. But again and again, he spins it around. If we love him, we will keep his commandments. And they're not burdensome, not grievous. Because he's given us his grace, he's given us his spirit. He's equipping the saints to live the way they were supposed to, the way they were designed to. By the way, in Revelation 2, keeping his commandments is twice mentioned as an identifying mark of believers. We do not keep the Lord's commandments because we're earning our way to heaven, establishing our own righteousness, building up our credit score, but simply because we love him. We're not under law, but under grace. What does grace teach us? Paul writes to Timothy, to Titus, sorry. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to everyone. 
It instructs us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live sensible, upright, and godly lives in the present age as we wait for the blessed hope and glorious appearance of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. I like that. Jesus is both our Saviour and our great God. Both those descriptions belong to him. Where do we figure out what's ungodly and worldly? Where do we understand what is sensible and upright and godly? From God's word. From God's word. The Holy Spirit instructs us as we listen to scripture, as we read scripture. Let me repeat, Christians are not under the old covenant. We're not under the law of Moses. But in the core of the law, God's moral law still remains, is still true. It shows how we are to live now. The measure we should be applying to ourselves is not a do list or a don't list or any list, but the principle of love. Love firstly for God, love for one another, love for our brothers and sisters. Does what I'm thinking about doing, choosing to do, show that I love and honor God, that I love and honor my neighbor, that I love and honor my Christian or sister, my Christian brother or sister? Some of us have just been reading Jeremiah and we're into Lamentations now. Jeremiah and Ezekiel prophesied during the fall of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple. Terrible times for the people of Israel. But both those prophets had words from God about the new covenant that God would bring in in the future. One of them was this in Jeremiah. God was going to write his law not on stones this time, but in our hearts. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will, make, I will put my law in their minds and inscribe it in their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. That's always how God signs off covenant promises. I will be their God, they will be my people. This promise doesn't just mean that we're inwardly directed by God's law about what is righteous, but also that we're motivated, we're empowered to do what is right, which matches his moral law, which, which does honour him and shows our love for him. When we walk by the grace of God, led by the Spirit of God, when we love him and love one another, we fulfill his law. We show that it's written in our hearts by God. Is that a good promise? We'll pray about that before we finish. Romans 8. Not the bottom end, you all know. You know, all things work together. Top end. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For, the, for in Christ Jesus, the law... See, there's a bigger law than the law of... Sin and death. There's a bigger law than the law of Moses. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by human nature, the flesh. God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man as an offering for sin. He thus condemned sin in the flesh. Meaning, he judged it on the cross. So that the righteous standard of the law might be fulfilled in us. Notice that. The righteous standards might be, what? Measured against us so we, oh, 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 oh dear. Might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, to sinful human nature, but according to the spirit. Jesus took away our condemnation and gives us the spirit so that the righteous standards of the law may be worked out in us, fulfilled in us, because we're not walking according to human nature, but according to the spirit. Being set free by the law of the spirit of life, we fulfill God's commandments. Let me illustrate that to you. Almost done. Okay, here I am driving along. Now if I'm a wise driver, if I do love my neighbour as myself, I will not be breaking speed limits 
I will not be undertaking on the inside lane and I won't be using my mobile phone while driving. <laughs> and it really doesn't matter whether the laws are there against those things or not because I'm wise enough to know they're the right things to do. So whether the police are nearby or the speed camera's coming up, it's not an issue for that driver because it's already fulfilling the law. And if we are rightly motivated, energised and empowered by the Holy Spirit and taught from God's word, we can stop thinking about the do's and don'ts and the ifs and buts. We just keep going on what is right. We fulfil the law by following a better way. So a Christian lives not by trying their best not to kill today or steal today or, or commit adultery today and so on, but by following a way of life that fulfills those commandments. It's the way of the core, the heart of the law. It's the way of grace and truth. It's the way of life in and by the Holy Spirit. It's the way of love. It's the way of wisdom taught in God's word. It's the way of Jesus. It's how he lived. Okay. In Galatians 5, a couple of excerpts, I'm not going to read them all. Three verses, pull that. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. Verse 18, if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. The law's got nothing to say to you. But the fruit of the Spirit, what the Spirit produces in you in terms of character, is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. Against such things there is no law. You're flying. You're fulfilling the law. Romans 8.14 All who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. So Paul warned the Galatians fiercely, don't add back elements from the old covenant to this new covenant in Christ Jesus. It's foreign, doesn't belong. The old has gone, the new has come. Jesus set us free from the rituals and regulations of the, of, of the old, test, old covenant. Brothers and sisters, if you're in Christ, you're a son and heir of God in him. You're a covenant partner in our great covenant head. Walk by the Spirit. Be led by the Spirit. Be instructed by God's Word, which is, by the way, also the Word of the Spirit. And you'll be led and taught and equipped and empowered for, to fulfill all that God says in his law. Please remember, the Holy Spirit who inspired Scripture will never act against or overthrow Scripture. He'll cause you to fulfill it. If we love him, if we love the Lord, we'll keep his commandments. Yet we do not live by the law, but by the grace and truth that have come to us in Jesus and by the help of the Holy Spirit in and with us. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Let me just ask you, finish it now. Do you have this new life in the Lord Jesus? Are you born of God? Look at that, remember that precious promise of the new covenant, hundreds of years before Jesus came. Jeremiah prophesied it. God will write his law in your hearts. Do you find motivation in here to do what is right? You're not being nagged by the law, don't do this, don't do that, but rather you're being led to do what is the right thing. What fulfills honouring God and loving him, what fulfills honouring and respecting and loving your neighbours. Do you live by following the Spirit according to his word? If not, make the prayer of David your prayer today. Psalm 51. Create a pure heart in me, O God, and put a new and loyal spirit in me. Do not banish me from your presence. Do not, do not take your Holy Spirit away from me. Shall we pray?
I want you to take a moment and uh, some of what I've said today may be pretty fresh and new to some of you. And uh, let's make a beginning. If there are things going on in you that you would be unwilling to even talk about, but you want to be rid of them, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Come to Him. Say, Lord, wash me. Make me, give me a clean heart. Write your truth in me deep. So I'm not looking at a list. I'm not, I'm not looking at a, what I've got to struggle with today and what I mustn't do today. But rather, I'm, requir- I'm relying on your truth, your grace, your Holy Spirit. To not only teach me, but to empower me, to equip me to be what you made me to be. There's wonderful promises in God's Word. All you have to do is humble your heart and ask of Him. Make it your prayer right now. Lord Jesus, please, here I am. I give myself to you. At the cross you brought me to belong to you, to be one who loves you and obeys you. Here I am, Lord. I haven't been doing it very well. Help me, Jesus, by your Spirit. Help me, Lord. Lord, may your word rest in all of our hearts, teaching us to live not as those who are under anything, but those who are being led by the Spirit of God as your children equipped for life and godliness by everything you provided, all the wonderful things you promised us in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Thank you, Pastor Ronald.